If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Esther, chapter 3. The book of Esther is, in many ways, a puzzle to us. Um, it's in the Bible. I believe it belongs in the Bible. But it is the only book in the Bible in which there is no mention of the name of God. There is no mention of prayer. There is no indication of praise, even after a great deliverance. There is no quotation or mention of scripture. And there is no evidence of particularly good people in this book. As we've seen, it opens with a king throwing a lavish banquet that lasts six months and then he tacks on an extra week. And at the end of the week, he wants his queen, Vashti, to come out and present herself to his guests. She refuses. He throws a fit. Long story short, he gets rid of her and it is decided that they will have a contest to find another queen. There's at least four steps in this contest. It's a four-step procedure. First, after they've selected these women from around the empire who must be young, beautiful, and virgins. There's a 12-month program of beauty treatments. Then, the second step is one night of trying to please the king sexually. And the contestant can take anything with her that she wants that she thinks might help her in this. The third step is there's a change of status, that she's no longer in the part of the harem with the virgins, but she's now in the part of the harem with the concubines. And then finally, she has to wait. The fourth step is to wait to see if the king remembers her, remembers her name, calls her back, or if, in fact, she is going to be selected to be the new queen. As I mentioned, the chilling words are chapter 2. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. While some might see this as a preparation for marriage, in reality, for all of the women except for one, it was preparation for a life like widowhood. Um, There's no guarantee the king would remember her. There's no guarantee the king would ever call her back. And so after one night of being with a man, most of these women would never be with him again. There is the emotional and the physical deprivation. And yet... This is the contest in which the main character in this book, Esther, has agreed to participate in. We were talking after church last Sunday. Those of you who have daughters, can you imagine allowing your daughter to participate in such a thing? And Mordecai, in fact, does. We read, when the term came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. It's been four years since Vashti had been deposed for refusing to show up. And now it is the tenth month of the year. It's a wet month. It's a cold month. It's the middle of winter. And yet, Esther pleased the king. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So I told you last week, I remember the P or the G version of this uh, from my childhood that Esther apparently was a great conversationalist and that's why the king fell in love with her and married her. We don't see that in the text at all. And our romantic view of things, I think, 
somehow blinds us to the harsh reality of what happened here. Um, you know, people talk about the Hollywood casting couches. That's nothing compared to this because the woman is trapped. Once she is with the king, she is put into him. She can't go out. She can't audition for another part. She can't audition for another husband. This is it. She is now one of the king's concubines. Mordecai, maybe connected to this, we don't know, uh, gets a government position. And while he is in this position, he learns of an assassination plot against the king. He tells Esther, she tells the king, the two would-be assassins are caught and executed. Mordecai is really a puzzling figure in this book, uh, as is Esther. Even though he has an excellent lineage, he comes from the uh, tribe of Benjamin, he chose to stay in exile rather than to go back to the land God had given to his people. He willingly took care of his orphan cousin, Esther, and raised her as his own daughter, and yet he allows her to participate in this, basically, sex contest. He demonstrated ongoing concern. We read at the end uh, in chapter 2 that every day he was outside the harem checking on Esther to make sure that she was okay. And yet he tells her, don't tell anybody what you are. Don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. He is loyal to the king, but he does not acknowledge his relationship to his own daughter. In my way of thinking, Mordecai really makes some questionable choices in this story. Beyond allowing Esther to participate in the contest and telling her not to reveal her identity, Chapter 3 opens with him doing something which in my mind is quite foolish and almost means the end of the Jewish race. If you will, look at the first six verses of chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadath the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he told them, he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So here's the story. There's this man named Haman who gets promoted to the king, the highest position in the kingdom next to the king. Um, Esther is married to this king. Mordecai is an employee of this king. The king elevates Haman and tells everyone they need to kneel down and honor this man, and Mordecai refuses. I mean, his, his adopted daughter is the queen. He refuses to obey the king. He works for the king. He refuses to obey. And when confronted, you know, why, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do, what the king commanded? He doesn't answer. The only answer he seems to give is, I'm a Jew. So after a while, his fellow employees, if you wish, government officials, go to Haman because maybe there's like a Jewish thing that they're not allowed to do this, that they're not allowed to bow down and honor uh, an official. It's against their religion. 
Well, when Haman finds out, he is enraged. And he decides he doesn't want to kill Mordecai. It's nothing. He wants to kill every Jew on the planet. What is going on in this story? Well, as you can imagine, there are different theories as to why Mordecai would not bow down. Some say that it's arrogance. Um, I don't see that in the text. Some people say it's because he believes in one God. He's a monotheist. Yeah, that's, that doesn't wash either because he's not asked to worship Haman. He's asked to bow down and honor him. And we have Jews throughout the Old Testament doing precisely that. I think what is going on is, in fact, an ancient hatred. In this book, we are told the backgrounds or the ancestries of two men. One is Mordecai, the other is Haman. Haman is referred to as son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Hamadatha is unknown to us, but we do know of a certain Agag. This is the king of the Malachites. And if you want to turn to this, I'll be reading different passages. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and his army spared Agag and the rest, or the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Well, what were God's instructions? Well, if you go to the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, God, through Samuel, says, Now go attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And why was he to do this? The Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. So Saul and the Israelites are supposed to wipe out the Amalekites for something that happened more than 300 years earlier. Here's the story. This is in uh, Exodus chapter 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of your, our men and go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For, my, for hands were lifted up to the throne of God. The Lord will be at uh, war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Just a side note here. There's nothing magical about Moses holding up his hands. 
but they are holding up his hands to the throne of God, which was one in one of our hymns today, lifting up of holy hands to God. As long as he was in a position of prayer, Israel was winning. But then when he got tired and his hands would come down, the Amalekites would be winning. At the end of the day, the Amalekites are driven off. And God says, I'm going to wipe these people out. So Saul is commanded to do this more than three centuries later. You know, we have a word for what Saul was supposed to do. It's a word that was created after World War II. The word's genocide. God's commanding Saul to commit genocide. And you know, we are told in Deuteronomy 25, as Moses retells the story, um, he says of the Amalekites, they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. You know, this, I don't know about you, this certainly doesn't sound very Christian. And this is something we hear God commanding. So this explains, this explains Haman. It doesn't explain Mordecai. The kingdom was taken from Saul. Saul was the first king. Jonathan should have been the second king. We should have had the house of Saul. And instead, Saul is, God says, that's it. I'm going to start with a new line, and that's where David comes into the picture. And because of Agag, because he did not kill Agag, Samuel, by the way, does it, if you read 1 Samuel 15, the kingdom is taken from him. And what we are told of Mordecai is that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Saul. One of his descendants, or one of his ancestors, is Kish, father of Saul. And one of his other ancestors is Shemei, who was cursing David when he was running from Absalom, also from the tribe of Benjamin. So what we have here is an ancient hatred. We have one of the descendants of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. He's actually from the same line as Saul, Kish. And then we have an Agagite, someone whose people were almost wiped out by this man's people. I can understand why Haman might be upset. Not quite sure why Mordecai feels like he doesn't need to respect this man. And so Haman is not content to kill one man because this one man's people were not content to kill one or two people. They were bent on genocide. And now Haman's going to return the favor. He will commit genocide against the Jews. So, look if you would in verse number 7, here in Esther 3. In the twelfth year of Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from, all, from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put ten thousand talents into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. 
So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. It's been five years since Esther became queen. She became queen in the seventh year. This is now the twelfth year. If you were to ask me what is the most important verse in the book of Esther, it's actually verse number seven. It represents, I think, it's the key to the whole book. It is about poor, Purim in uh, plural, which becomes the basis, as we will see in the end, of a yearly festival. It is casting lots. It is deciding in different ways. We have different ways of doing it today. Whoever pulls the short straw, flipping a coin. But this is a way of casting lots. And in scripture, interestingly enough, we find casting lots described in a good way. In the book of Joshua, when they divided up Canaan, they did it by casting lots. In Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, why does it seem to indicate that what Haman did was bad, and if the Jews do it, it's okay? I don't think it's a question of nationality or ethnicity. What Haman is doing, and what most people to do, do today when they flip a coin or cast lots or whatever, when they gamble, is they are looking to another source for an answer. They are looking to chance, they are looking to fate, not the God of all creation. And yet what Haman failed to recognize is that the God of all creation is involved even when he is not acknowledged. Haman is in the first month of the year. They cast the lots and it ends up selecting the last month of the year. They're in Nisan and it will be in Adar, the tenth month. He has to wait an entire year, a calendar year, for him to carry out his plot. But perhaps he doesn't mind because this gives him more time to make the preparations for the genocide, the extermination of the Jews. Then he goes to the king. And what we hear here is a mixture of truth, half-truths, and lies. There are certain people dispersed among the peoples, that's true, in all the provinces of your kingdom. That I'm not so sure about. I don't know that there were Jews in all 127 provinces whose customs are different. That's true. Who do not obey the king's laws, that is not true. Haman's solution is, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He is so invested in this ancient hatred that he is willing to pay for the privilege of exterminating the Jews. 10,000 talents of silver. That's 750,000 pounds of silver. I'm not sure that I can comprehend what that is, and I'm not sure that it's helpful for us to even think in those terms. We should think of it this way. This is 60% of the yearly income of the Persian Empire. So 60% of the GDP, Haman is willing to put into the treasury so he can exterminate the Jews. It must mean that Haman was wealthy. Or it could be that he hoped in killing the Jews he could take their possessions and get enough from all of the Jews to pay the 10,000 talent debt. The king is richer than everyone. He says, keep your money. Here's my ring. Do what you need to do. And it is here that we read that Haman is the enemy of the Jews. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 15. 
Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Because remember, Haman has the signet ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The ESV says, thrown into confusion. You will notice that the command is universal. It is sent out to every province in the language and script of each people. The orders are given to the satraps. The 127 provinces were divided into 20 satrapies. So there you have 20 of these men, and then you have 127 governors. And then the nobles are the local officials. They are all given this command. And the command is comprehensive. Destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews. It is no wonder that Susa, where Mordecai is, and apparently he's not the only Jew in town, is thrown into confusion. I must confess that at this point, I begin to wonder what the author, the author of Esther, knew. I begin to get a sense that, in fact, this is not a Jew who is writing this. This is not someone who knows about the Jewish customs, who doesn't believe in God. He's a pagan. He's simply reporting what he sees what he hears. There's little or no interpretation or explanation. And why do I say that? The date of the writing of the edict is mentioned, but we're not told anything else. It is the 13th day of the first month. It's the day before Passover. It's the most significant day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day before Passover. It is when God delivered them out of Egypt. And the day before they are going to celebrate the tremendous deliverance out of Egypt after four centuries of being enslaved, they get the news that the king has going to allow them to be annihilated. You know, I think if I was writing the book of Esther, I might have included that little piece of information. (coughs) But it may be, in fact, that the author didn't know that. Or even worse, it may be that many of the Jews had forgotten that it was the day before Passover. Years ago, the LA Times did an article, it may have been a series of articles, on the lost Jews of Mexico. And did some historical study, which was of interest to me. Um, In 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, the Jews were kicked out of Spain, as were the Muslims. Well, a lot of them sort of went underground, undercover, and many of them made their way to the New World. But they had to keep it secret that they were Jewish. So they did certain things, but they never told their kids, hey, we're Jewish. And so the author of this article found that there are people, particularly in northern Mexico, that are actually ethnically Jewish. They don't know it. But every Friday night they light candles. They don't know why. It's just mom did it. 
So they light candles. They, they, they don't know that it's Shabbat. It's Shabbat that's here. They, and it may be that these Jews who don't go back to the promised land, who decide to stay in exile, they've forgotten it's Passover. But we, as we read it, I mean, this, this should say something to us. That Haman thinks he is in control of the situation. Um, and in fact, it is not. What we hear about, in fact, is the reaction. The reaction to this edict. And that is that they are thrown into confusion. Now we come to chapter 4. And read, let's look at the first three verses. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The actions were, in fact, keeping with custom. The tearing of clothing, we know that Jews did this, but Persians did as well. We know that when they lost the big battle at Salamis, that people tore their clothes. But the ashes is something that is, at least in the Old Testament, seems to be uniquely Jewish. And so they fast, they're wailing, they tear their clothes, they're in ashes, but not a word about them praying. Is this because the author did not notice them praying? Or is it because they did not pray? When we did the series on prayer. I said that prayer is universal. And perhaps the fact that it's not mentioned means that it didn't happen. Of course this is an emotional time. It's a time of great sorrow. But it, apparently no one stops to think, you know, maybe we should pray about this. Esther hears about what Mordecai is doing before she actually hears about the edict. She doesn't have any clue that the Jews are supposed to be annihilated. Look, if you would, in verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead for her people. It's the first time that somebody other than Mordecai is told that Esther is Jewish. Hathak, the eunuch, now has that piece of information. Verse 9, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king, by the king, or the king has but one law that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. What Mordecai suggests that she go in and say to the king, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish, spare my people, she says is very dangerous. They've been married five years. He has concubines. He hasn't called for her in 30 days. This might not be the best time for her to go into the king's presence. 
Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. There are three lines to Mordecai's argument with Esther. First of all, she's not going to be spared. She, in fact, will not escape this annihilation. If the Jews will be wiped out, she's not going to be the only Jew left standing. Secondly, if she refuses to do anything, deliverance will come from someone else. This is one of those moments when we are tantalizing close, tantalizingly close to Mordecai saying something about God. He doesn't. But again, is this because of the author? Is he not aware of what's going on? But Mordecai says, listen, you don't do this. Someone, deliverance will come. Hello, Passover? Moses? Israel out of Egypt? God delivered us once. He can do it again. But if God, if you don't do it and God delivers us, you will not be delivered. You and your father's house. She's an orphan, so her father's line dies with her if she does not do this. And then thirdly, those wonderful words, and who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Again, divine providence, God, God put you here. No, it's not there. Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. One could make the case that this whole crisis was brought on by Mordecai. For whatever reason, is it the ancient hatred? Is it his arrogance? When he refuses to do what the king has commanded, his decisions does not simply affect him, it affects all his people. And because one Jew will not bow down to Haman, the Agagite, now the Jews are to be exterminated. And all of them, you, you heard it, women and children, they're all to be put to death. We are individualists. We are Americans. We too easily forget or we reject the notion that our actions affect other people. We have the phrase, a victimless crime. You know, that when I commit a crime, if there are no victims, then no one gets hurt. It's, it's just me doing what I do. And the idea that if I do something I should not do, other people will suffer the consequences of my action. I think for us as Americans, it's really hard for us to get our minds around that. Just, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. I make a choice, I'll bear the consequences, it shouldn't affect other people. But in fact, it does. And in the church, we as the church in this country, in this culture, we should in fact 
acknowledge that and, and recognize that if something, someone in the congregation does something, it affects the whole congregation. Rather than sort of buying into the notion of the American culture that it's, you know, just, just for myself. Whatever I do, um, it affects me and no one else. That's simply not the case. And we see it here with Mordecai. There's something else. In the same way that, or perhaps in a greater way, that we cannot wrap our minds around the fact that we belong to each other. I find it extremely difficult to understand why God would order the genocide of a particular people. And, I mean, I think, you know, if God had told Joshua back in the day when they got ambushed by the Amalekites and they're coming, you know, they're going to the promised land, if God had said to Joshua then, okay, wipe them out, that'd be easier to take. But over three centuries later, almost four hundred years later, he says to Saul, yeah, remember what they did four centuries ago? I want you to kill them all. And all I can do at this point, in all honesty, is bow before God and say, I don't understand this. And on some level, say, when I read these things, it makes it difficult for me to worship you. But the reality is there are a lot of things I can't get my mind around. And God is infinite and I'm finite. And God is perfect and I am a sinner. And I trust that what he is doing is right. And so he allows what we have seen thus far. You have a nice Jewish girl being a contestant in a sex contest. And she becomes queen. So we're like, well, that sort of worked out okay. And then you have, for whatever reason, if it's arrogance, if it's hatred, Mordecai refusing to do what he should, and then Haman saying, I'm going to exterminate them. I'll pick the day by chance. I'll roll the dice. I'll pick the day. And yet God is in control of the whole situation, which is all the more impressive because no one in this book says God. No one. The reality is, I think, if you think about it, look back over your life. There have been so many moments in which God has arranged the circumstances of our lives. And at that point in our life, we didn't acknowledge it. It didn't even occur to us. We might use words like coincidence or luck or fortunate. If we're feeling particularly Christian, we might say blessed. But the notion that God was there every step of the way I think oftentimes our lives are more like the book of Esther than they are the rest of the books of the Bible. That God is directing our lives and he never comes up in the conversation. We never acknowledge him. Perhaps we don't even pray. We might fast, we might mourn, we might wail, but to actually enter into a conversation with God doesn't seem to occur to us. As difficult as it is to understand, I'm glad that the book of Esther is in the Bible. In many ways, I think it reflects me more than I care to acknowledge. The reality is, 
God is still in control. And the Lord willing, in the next two Sundays, we will see how this works out. Let's pray together. Father, we would freely confess we don't understand you so often. Why the innocent suffer? Why the guilty seem to go free? That's in our lifetime. But then when we look at scripture and history, and we see you commanding the genocide of, against a particular people, we just... We're like Abraham when told that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. It's just... Is this what the God of the earth does? We are here today to worship you. And in our worship we acknowledge that we do not fully understand you. I think we barely understand you. But we know that you made us. You made us in in your image. You have redeemed us through your Son. And you call us to trust you. May we not be like Eve and, and really wonder if you're keeping the good stuff from us. But trust that, in fact, you're doing what is right. And in a life or in a conversation or in a country where you may not be mentioned, you're still there. And where people are looking to chance or to some other source, you're the one who is still in control. As we leave today, help us to remember that our actions don't simply affect us. They affect others. Haman's refusal to obey the king almost ended up in the extermination of the Jewish people. It wasn't just what he was doing. It affected others. And as your people, as brothers and sisters, those who are part of the family of God, may we recognize, may we remember and take to heart that what we do affects our brothers and sisters. It affects the body of Christ. It affects the church. We need to think carefully about what we do. Because it isn't just about us. I thank you for the book of Esther. And how in many ways it's more of a mirror than other parts of scripture. It reflects so often the way we live our lives. May we come to see that we're not supposed to live that way. You are to be at the center of all things. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you. We pray for the Nawas as they come back, you would give them safety. And for the Johnsons as they travel, you would give them safety as well. Titus is going to Tennessee. Um, for each of us as we travel around, give us safety. And may you always be in our thoughts as we are always in yours. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.